The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and stocks are rallying to end the week, but off-session highs when we were up 612 points. Right now, the Dow's up 455. That's nearly a 2% gain. Interesting is the NASDAQ is the laggard, only up by two-thirds of 1%, but it's the big winner for the week. As with all the averages, we are higher. Uh, The second straight positive week and the third time in four weeks that that has been the case, actually. Still, it's enough rough, another rough session, she said, for oil, which is trading in the $18 range, hitting the lowest level since 2001 today. Now, there might be some technical reasons for this. We'll get into that a little bit later on. Uh, maybe that split isn't quite as bad as it looks. Energy stocks are up today along with the overall market. But let's get to Bob Bassani, who has more on all of this, along with the earnings that we've had today. Hi, Bob. And the important thing here, uh, Kelly, better treatment hopes combined with some kind of timeline for getting out of this is why we've been getting these rallies in the last few days. Let me just show you, because the important thing today is the sectors most beaten up on the week are the ones that are having the biggest rally today. So the Russell 2000 has been lagging for a long time. It's rallying. Bank stocks are rallying. Horrible week up today. Home builders, bad week up today. Industrial, same thing, bad week. And look, you saw what Kelly said to you, energy up, even despite the fact that we've seen a drop uh, in oil. In terms of the Dow leadership, Boeing with hopes to restart production in Washington. That's the big leader on the Dow Jones Industrial Average. J.P. Morgan's up nicely. And again, it had a horrible week. Amex and Visa had a horrible week, but they're trading to the upside. And even Exxon is trading up here. And all the laggers are the ones that have been doing well up until Thursday night. Walmart, 52-week high, flat today. Procter & Gamble, good earnings report, flat today. Merck United Health, all up on the week. Apple, finally, uh, down, of course, we got uh, we got so downgrade there from Goldman Sachs. Kelly, you know, speaking of earnings, Bob, we've there, th- this whole discussion about whether companies should be even issuing guidance has reignited because so many have withdrawn it or declined to provide it altogether. Uh, what do you think? Does this become the moment that it goes away? Well, we've got the confluence of two events. First, a whole bunch of companies have basically withdrawn earnings guidance. So we saw Uber, we saw Abbott, we saw ConocoPhillips. This is the last 24 hours, Jack in the Box, GoPro, Bed Bath & Beyond, Audi and Volkswagen in, in, in Europe. There have been calls, again, from people coming into the uh, in, on Wall Street saying, why don't we just kill earnings guidance altogether? This has been controversial for a number of years, but the basic arguments are simple. Number one, there's a focus on short-term thinking that increases the volatility of stocks. It doesn't help. That it's linked to lower earnings growth. And a lot of investors don't really want quarterly earnings guidance. They want guidance once a year. I am not so sure about all this, Kelly. I would point out that only one in five companies actually provide earnings guidance uh, at all. And companies are still required to file quarterly reports with the SEC, even if they don't give any earnings guide. So it's going to be there. The, the earnings commentary is still going to be there, whether we eliminate the guidance or not. And Wall Street, you can bet, Kelly, they're going to step into the vacuum. If there's no earnings guidance, analysts are going to step in, provide more information. And of course, that just means the little guy gets a little less access to what's really going on. So I'm not sure that this necessarily solves things, but it's definitely come back as an issue. Back to you. No, that's an interesting point that it uh, would would help, uh, that it might hurt us uh, as well at this point. 
Uh, Bob, we appreciate it. Thanks, Bob Pisani. Okay. Stocks are pulling back from their session highs right now as investors rethink the strength of the economic recovery we might see. Charlie Munger, the vice chair of Berkshire Hathaway, today saying this downturn will cause them to, quote, shutter some businesses and that a few smaller ones of theirs won't reopen when this is over. Those remarks to the Wall Street Journal. Joining me now are Nancy Tangler, the chief investment officer at Laffer Tangler Investments, and Bob Pavlik, chief investment strategist at Slate Stone Wealth. It's great to see you both. And Nancy, what do you think about uh, how this recovery might shape up? Yeah, that's that's the million dollar question, Kelly. You know, we we had said at the end of March, about March 18th, 19th and 20th, we wrote to our clients. We were on the air saying, hey, we think we we found a bottom, which is not to say stocks couldn't go lower, but we were really bumping along. And now this rally has uh, been so violent to the upside so quickly, just like the downturn was, you know, that may be the offset. It may be the right thing. But I think as we move forward, it's still difficult to tell whether or not this is going to be a V-shape recovery or a U-shape or a swoosh, whatever you want to call it. And so last night when you saw the president make the announcement about um, unrolling the phase one, phase two, phase three, get back to work programs, the futures were up over 900 points uh, and we've settled back down. So I think there's a lot of noise in the short term, the computer program traders, the movements in and out of ETFs. It's difficult to say that the market's forecasting a strong recovery because some of these moves just don't make sense. Right. And Bob, that's that's the big debate. Is is the rebound telling us that the recovery will be better than we think? Or is the stock market fooled? And we have other signals for the bond market and elsewhere that paint a more sobering picture. Here's what Brian Reynolds said today. He's focusing, as so many investors are, on balance sheets right now and thinks all of this borrowing to get through this crisis is going to cause a pretty bad hangover. He says the massive growth in debt and transformation of balance sheets will change the focus of companies to debt buybacks in coming years. This will make for a less intense equity bull market than the last three. Bob, would you agree? I think it even goes further than that. I think if you if you start to think out how this is going to impact towns and cities and governments around the world, because we're going to have to be paying for these various programs for a very long time. So social programs are going to be impacted. After school programs are going to be impacted. Um, food stamps even. You know, this is not going to be something that goes away anytime soon. But what the market is telling you is that it's looking out a year from now. In a year from now, economic conditions are going to be better than they are right at this moment. And I think that's what you have to focus on as a long-term investor. The market gives you opportunities. You have to be opportunistic and step in at your into companies that are, that are quality companies, mm-hmm. solid balance sheets, market leaders who have real uh, defense um, positions around their products. And I think as a long-term investor, that's what you want to focus on. You don't necessarily want to try to shoot for the moon with these COVID-19 type of plays, but look for quality companies. And I think that's how you populate your portfolio going forward. Nancy, who comes up uh, in your kind of like investment list right now? Well, we we still like technology. I feel like a little bit like a broken record, Kelly. But I I think coming out of this, in addition, uh, you're going to be in a good position with many of the tech names we own. So we had been add, we have been adding to Microsoft and some of the names I've mentioned before, Palo Alto Networks, Splunk for cybersecurity, uh, Salesforce. We're actually taking a look at Workday, which has sold off quite dramatically to see if we want to add that to our portfolio. And then we're barbelling that with um, a group we were already invested in and overweight in, which is healthcare. Uh, but we have added a little bit to some of those names. I thought the Johnson & Johnson dividend increase was uh, very 
optimistic mm-hmm. and good for stocks. So we're, we're continuing to add there and then also in the consumer discretionary uh, space. Because I agree with Bob. I think, you know, eventually we'll get there. I just think this rally has moved too quickly and I wouldn't be chasing it. I'd be waiting for some of these stocks to come back to you as a buyer. Chipotle was one we bought on March 20th. You know, it was, I, I, I think it was at 555 and now the stock's at 800. Wow. I mean, that I can't justify that in my head. It's a 50% move. Right. So, Bob, you also are going company by company looking at Qualcomm, uh, Eli Lilly, United Health, Home Depot. And we've heard, uh, you know, the cases made for those stocks. But let me just leave it on this question about whether you have to be st- a stock picker, essentially, in this environment. If we're talking about debt overhang, you know, the companies doing better are the ones with cleaner balance sheets and so forth. You know, maybe you can buy the whole S&P, but certainly if you're, if you're trying to buy sectors, this would seem like an awfully hard time to do so. It is. It's very difficult to even buy index uh, ETFs or mutual funds because you're taking the, the, the bad with the good. And that's not what you want to do. You want to focus on companies who are going to have demand for their products as we come out of all this. A year from now, not all companies are going to have the same kind of demand for either the products or services. And so I think if that's what you focus on, that's where you're going to be able to find companies so it's it's more bottom up than rather than top down right now. Yeah. Yeah. No, it makes sense to me. Bob Pavlik, Nancy Tangler. Thank you both. Good to see you. Thank you. We Thanks. appreciate it. Let's look at shares of Gilead now, which are up about 8 percent, a little off the highs on reports that its experimental drug remdesivir is seeing clinical trial success in treating COVID-19. Meg Terrell is here with the very latest. Meg, this is the story of the day. It sure is, Kelly. And we have to take it with a little bit of a grain of salt because it's not actual clinical trial results. It is a peak from one hospital involved in a clinical trial of Gilead's uh, drug remdesivir. This was reported by Stat News last night. They obtained a video communication from the University of Chicago, which is running this trial, essentially saying they saw rapid recoveries in fever and respiratory symptoms uh, in the patients that they enrolled in their study. Uh, They said only two patients included in those 125 they were including in the trial passed away. Now, we are going to have to wait for the real clinical trial results to come out to draw any conclusions. We should see Gilead's trial readout in late April and an NIH placebo-controlled trial in late May, and that will really be the gold standard. So there is some controversy over how to interpret this news uh, on Wall Street from a city. They're calling it a ray of hope. J.P. Morgan calling it directionally positive. Leerink reminds us it is only anecdotal right now. And Baird saying the exuberance is out of control. Now, Gilead also issuing a statement on this saying, quote, the totality of the data need to be analyzed in order to draw any conclusions from the trial. Anecdotal reports, while encouraging, do not provide the statistical power necessary to determine the safety and efficacy profile of remdesivir. So, Kelly, obviously there's a lot of hope that this is going to be an effective drug, but we do need to wait for the clinical trial results to really know. Back yeah, over to you. That's a good point. Uh, grain of salt. Meg, thanks. Meg Terrell there. Our next guest just reiterated his buy rating on Gilead, but noted we could see a pullback in the stock after today's bump. Let's welcome in Michael Yee. He's the equity analyst covering the biotech sector for Jefferies. Michael, great to see you. Uh, so skepticism or just valuation concerns? Uh, no, I think uh, what Meg was alluding to is right. I think that in the biotech community, there seems to be a bit of over-exuberance and a lot of enthusiasm uh, f- uh, for this. But at the end of the day, this was just a piece of, of the data set. Uh, in the biotech world, 
while there's enthusiasm, we understand that, you know, there's not going to be a huge financial benefit for Gilead. And so that also uh, probably uh, tames some of the uh, the excitement. I think the stock probably pulls back just a little bit uh, because this is probably overdone and maybe expectations are a little bit high going into this data coming up. So you're saying even in the best case scenario for this drug, you don't think Gilead's going to make a lot of money from it? You know, I think that the, uh, the, the, the key part about remdesivir is while this is going to be fantastic if we can get a drug to patients, to the world, I think that's obviously fantastic. Uh, you know, I think that Gilead has been pretty clear that they don't plan to uh, make billions and billions of dollars off of this. It's more really about from a stock picking perspective, what I've been talking about before, that both Gilead and the pharmaceutical industry could benefit both from a reminder about the innovation and the importance of what we're doing, um, and also that, of course, drug pricing legislation probably isn't coming anytime soon. So it's interesting because, like you said, I mean, at this time, the the the, in, the outrage if they charged anything high too much for this drug would, would just be unimaginable. But at the same time, people are reminded we rely on these companies for these kinds of innovations. You know, the drug pricing legislation, like you said, is probably done. So it's a positive for the whole sector. Would there be any other companies, the Modernas, you know, the others who are trying to come up with these vaccines that you think are in a better position, either valuation wise or in terms of the science uh, for people who are who want to bet on a possible uh, who want to bet on coronavirus, basically. Yeah. So while well, well, I think that the data coming out on remdesivir will be construed positive, and I do think over the rest of the year, you know, reiterating the bio and Gilead, I think that stock is moving up. We're also focusing on Regeneron, uh, you know, Regeneron, which is buy rating here at Jefferies, uh, has been a great stock, and they also have a uh, coronavirus COVID-19 treatment that will begin later this year. We're quite uh, quite optimistic about that science, so that data will be reading out. That's a, that's a much improved story as well. And then Moderna, look, I think that the street will probably construe that data on that first initial uh, data set on the vaccine positively in this year. All of this leads us to be a little bit more optimistic about the biopharma space for the rest of this year. Final question, Michael, for someone who knows the science of this very well right now, what would you tell the rest of the public about when we should realistically expect a treatment uh, and when and when we should realistically expect a vaccine? Because all of these reopening plans hinge a lot on this. Yeah. You know, uh, number one on the treatment uh, landscape, you know, we do think uh, that remdesivir pending this data coming up is uh, going to be positive enough that it will get out there. There will be expanded use, but unfortunately it is a hospital-based infusion. So it's going to be relegated to that part of the market. Uh, uh, we do think that going forward, sort of a vaccine is probably going to be either Moderna or J&J, but for the public use of that, it's very clear, I think, that uh, this is going to be at least 2021, if not 2022, to even have a potential to be broadly used in the public. And I think Dr. Fauci, I think others understand that. So we would warn people not to get too overexcited about that. Um, but, uh, you know, right. markets don't want to be, be optimistic these days. Yeah, I mean, if, especially if that vaccine isn't broadly used till 2022, that would be sobering news. So uh, let me actually sneak one more in finally on the testing, which we're all hoping becomes more and more widespread. I know it's not necessarily your main focus area, but what's your sense for how quickly we can ramp up to have capacity of something like a million of these tests a week? Yeah, well, I, I think there's two parts. One is, of course, 
the importance of testing for the virus, uh, which I know that they're putting a lot of pressure on the administration to get out there because we shouldn't have people out there unless they're easily tested and know that they have the virus or could be infectious. That's part one. And I know that's ramping up significantly. If you listen to Dr. Fauci uh, yesterday, you know, over the next month or two or three, certainly by the fall, that should be plenty. And then the second part, which I think is longer term but extremely important, is the antibody testing to test those who have been infected previously. That is starting to get out there. I think a million tests you know, a week or whatever you suggested is going to take some time, but that's the second wave and that's also important, which leads us back to the, uh, the, the uh, pending tests, the pending therapeutics, all of this I think is good news uh, and we're gonna work our way out of this over the rest of this year. Yeah, I, I hope so. Uh, Michael, thanks so much, it's good to see you. Thank you. Appreciate Thank your you. insights. Michael Yee of Jefferies. And join CNBC for a virtual event with healthcare leaders at the center of the fight against coronavirus. It's happening on May 12th, and guests include executives from Moderna, Bristol Myers Squibb, Merck, and Regeneron, just to name a few. You can get more details and register at CNBCinvents.com slash healthy returns. Coming up here, the president unveiling the government's guidelines for opening the economy and saying the states have to step up their testing. We'll speak with Representative Josh Gottheimer of New Jersey, a member of the White House reopening committee about that. Speaking of testing, experts agree widespread testing is necessary to reopen the country. We'll break down in what states that is happening. And there are lots of things you can ask Alexa, and that now includes, do I have coronavirus? We'll have those full details ahead. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Check the price of oil. It's dropping more than 8% right now uh, and hovering just above $18 a barrel. We just learned that U.S. drillers cut 66 oil rigs this week. That's the biggest weekly decline since February of 2015, but not lending much support to that oil price. Uh, We'll continue to follow that throughout this hour and next. President Trump, meantime, unveiling new federal guidelines for reopening, but says it will ultimately be up to the state governors to make that call, adding in a tweet today that the states have to step up their testing. For the very latest, let's bring in Kayla Tausche. Kelly, the White House's guidelines yesterday said that if a state sees for 14 straight days improving data on symptoms, cases and hospitalizations, then it should be able to begin a phased reopening of the economy, leading President Trump to suggest less dense states like Wyoming might already be willing to do that. But beyond that 14-day window, a more specific timeline was left out. Senior administration officials say that's because the doctors did not want to be so prescriptive that states felt like they had to meet a deadline. President Trump today tweeting that Minnesota Minnesota, Michigan, and Virginia should be liberated, even though the latter two among those, according to the White House's heat map, are still hotspots. And then there's New York, which has tapped McKinsey to build its own reopening plan, where Governor Andrew Cuomo says it will be based on science and testing. As we're working our way over the next several months, the testing, which is informing us as to who can go back to work, Uh, helping us isolate people. It's about testing. And testing is a totally new challenge. Nobody has done this. 
A previous draft from Washington suggested that broad, widespread testing would be available mid-May. But the final draft that we saw yesterday, Kelly, again put the onus on the states to procure the testing that they need for residents and employees to feel safe. Kelly? Kayla, we're also getting some news that there might be a breakthrough in funding both for the small business uh, lending program and for hospitals right now. You know, hearing anything about that? Well, we've learned that the top House Republican, Kevin McCarthy, would support adding new funding for hospitals to an expansion of the Paycheck Protection Program. Democrats had been pushing for um, a whole host of different funds to be added to the expansion from hospital funding to certain state and local funding. And hospital uh, funding was seen as a sweet spot for compromise. And just today, uh, uh, Leader McCarthy saying that he would support that, uh, which certainly would seem to break that stalemate and hopefully move forward uh, in the next few days. Kelly? Uh, curious about that timing. So if it's Friday now, and, and even with this breakthrough, how quickly re- do you think we could get that funding reapproved? Well, yesterday, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said that she expected something to be done by the end of the month. Of course, both chambers are limited in what they can do uh, without being able to hold full-scale sessions. Um, We'll see whether there is unanimous support for a $250 billion small business expansion plus a hospital expansion, TBD, but we're thinking it would be in the $150 to $200 billion range. If there's not unanimous support, then we'll see what type of format they're able to take up uh, that type of proposal to actually get it passed. All right, so maybe uh, it will still take some time. Kayla, thanks. Uh, Really appreciate it. Kayla Tausche in Washington. The president delegating that reopening call to the states while pressing them to do more testing. But how much more can they realistically do on their own right now? Joining me is Representative Josh Gottheimer of New Jersey, who is also a member of the White House Task Force, opening up America Again Congressional Group. Uh, Congressman, it's good to see you. Welcome back. And um, I guess let's just begin with New Jersey, which is one of the hardest hit states. You know, why isn't there more testing and how quickly should we, you know, is May 15th potentially the date to start reopening? I mean, it's very frustrating, and especially, you know, our caseload is significant, as you know, and uh, more than 4,000 new cases yesterday. In my district alone, we have more than 17,000 cases, and more than 700 people have lost their lives. It's, 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 it's devastating here, and testing is essential. Uh, we've made this point um, over and over, you know, we're just trying to ramp, ramp that up, and, you know, you're seeing problems nationwide on this, and we, it's very difficult, and as focused I am is reopening uh, our state and reopening uh, uh, the country. For us, it's hard. It's really challenging without those tests in place. I understand the decision to make it a governor's call about whether to reopen their economies because they're all so different. But when it comes to testing, is that going to end up pitting states against each other for supplies? Well, we have to make sure that doesn't happen. I think that's really a federal charge, the testing and making sure that gets out there. It's why so many of us have been pushing hard on it, working with, of course, so many uh, uh, businesses and and life science companies like right in my backyard that's working on testing, and so many are. We have to work together. I think we're best when we work together on that front, and I'm going to keep pushing for that. Each state is different, and, you know, we need to reopen the country, and we have to have a very clear plan. In fact, I've been working on a bipartisan plan as a co-chair of the Problem Solvers Caucus with my colleagues on getting back to business and what that checklist looks like. At the top of that checklist is testing. Right, right. But again, you know, I hear you saying that there's coordination, but uh, it sounds like they're still the president is pushing the states themselves to kind of come up with this supply. Let me ask you about whether people want to I think go ahead. Tough, I think that's a tough thing to put on the states. I think that has to be coordinated. It's one thing if we're making decisions about um, looking at our, our caseloads and 
taking making sure our people are taken care of in our nursing homes and and our hospitals get what they need in our first responders and our frontline healthcare workers that's one piece and i believe the states have to make those decisions with when we're because when we're ready and ready to open with our businesses it's another thing to make sure that we're coordinating in our supply chain right in our our protective gear our our face masks and of course our tests that that's got to be a coordinated national effort not pitting each other again one against each other like we did when in the beginning with the face masks right it was Every exactly. state, every state fighting for the supply. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, no, I take your point. Do people want to get back out there uh, to work uh, out in public to restaurants again or are they scared in a, in a region that's as hard hit as yours? I mean, I, I, I think everyone wants to get back to school and back to work um, and, and people want to, you know, they, they want to get back to their lives. We all do. But I think people are very anxious, especially given and rightfully so, given the, the daily caseload. We all know so many people who are sick or who, we know people who've lost their lives. So it's, it's a, a, a very hard thing and, and people want to be careful and they want to know what to do, what steps to take and that the tests are there and that they've got the protective gear there. So it's, it, yes, we all want to get out, get out back to our lives, uh, but, but no one wants to put anyone's life in danger. And, and I, I think that's kind of the tough, the tough balance we're facing here. You know, I was shocked to read in the, uh, in the local paper uh, that they're seriously considering whether kids can finish out their spring sports season by starting in late May or having some kind of condensed thing. Now, I know it would avoid a huge administrative headache if they end up saying you can keep your eligibility and maybe come back next year, and that would be its own problem. But you really think, are kids going back to school this school year? Are, are we going to be playing sports? Is there going to be prom? I mean, is any of that realistic? I'm still hoping, and, and you know, I'm not willing to uh, say we're not coming back. I think we, if you ask me today, we're going to get there. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic because a, and we, we've got to make sure that all the kids have a chance to go to prom and all the, all the end of the year activities. B, all the kids want to play sports, and I think that's really important. But I, but I, I think we're not going to do it and, and put anyone's, uh, anyone at risk. And I, so I think I'm, I'm not ready to say we should, we should give it up for the school year. Um, we, yesterday, you probably announced, you know, in New Jersey, we announced through the governor that it's going to be uh, May 15th at the earliest. Uh, so I'm, I'm, that's my date that we're shooting for. And, and right now I spent the morning um, – doing long division with my kid. <laughs> Would you send him back into school? Today? No. Ever? Uh, this year? May 15th? Maybe. I mean, I, I think you really have to look at these things in, in two-week periods of time, uh, and I, that's how I'm looking at them. We don't know what we knew two weeks ago are different than today, and, and, and we're seeing the effect in different parts of the country and the curve flattening out. We're seeing that in New Jersey, the caseload, the, because people are are doing a phenomenal job by staying at home and, and social distancing. We're really seeing that the curve flatten out. So, you know, two weeks from now, it could look very different and we may feel more comfortable. But I think you're going to have to have precautions, like kids having uh, PPE, you know, and, and the teachers having face masks, you know, having uh, masks on to protect themselves. And if we if we can clean well and sanitize well so and, and socially distance properly, there's a lot of things to consider. I know our schools are working on that right now, and so is the governor, and we're all talking to each other. But in the meantime... You know, I still had a call very early this morning from uh, Mayor about uh, another nursing home with with thirty plus oh, people. Oh, it's awful. I mean, it's just awful. It's so you know, horrific. Yeah, it, it really is. I'm sure you've read about it. It's just horrific. No, it, it really. It, you know, it's a good reminder of what our priorities are as a society and how we're taking care of everybody. Uh, Governor or Representative, it's good to see you, uh, Congressman. Thanks, thanks so much. Congressman Josh Gottheimer of New Jersey, again, talking about the possible reopening plan.
Coming up, Congress is deadlocked over additional funding for testing in its next aid bill. How much is needed? What's holding it up? And what are the odds of that deal coming through? We'll explore that. Plus, the PPP, the lending program for small businesses, has run dry. So what's next? We'll speak with the head of the NFIB about its plan for the survival of America's small businesses. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in two minutes. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get the very latest in the coronavirus pandemic. Over to Rahel Solomon for the headlines at this hour. Rahel. Hi, Kelly. Good afternoon, everyone. New studies link severe cases of COVID-19 to obesity, especially among younger patients. Obesity, which is often associated with other pre-existing conditions, is now believed to be the most significant risk factor besides age. Isolation gowns are now the top shortage concern among healthcare professionals treating coronavirus patients. That's according to a new survey by Premier Inc. A ramp up in mask and respirator production appears to be limiting the necessary materials needed to produce the gowns. In Frankfurt, Kentucky... Protesters there took to the streets and cars outside the Capitol building to call for a reopening of that state's economy. And Major League Soccer is extending its suspension of the season until June 8th with plans to now hold championship games in December. As always, for more coronavirus coverage, head to CNBC.com. Kelly, I'll send back to you. All right, Rahel, thanks very much. Testing will be a crucial component to reopening the economy, but access to tests remains very uneven. Elon Moy is here with a look at where things stand across the country. Elon. You're right, Kelly. The debate over reopening the economy is coming down to a fight over who is responsible for that testing. Democrats pleading with the White House not to end the shutdown until there is widespread testing in place. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi issued this statement on the president's phase strategy. She said that testing is key to opening our country to resume our lives. The White House's vague and inconsistent document does nothing for the president's failure to listen to the scientists and produce national rapid testing. Now, today, White House economic advisor Larry Kudlow pushed back. He defended the president's outline and said that when he talks to businesses, he hears that testing is also about psychology. They saw it as a way to achieve confidence among folks who would go back to work or go shopping. And, you know, and I, I really understand that. Now, Congress has already allocated $38.4 billion for testing, treatment and vaccines. But Kelly, Democrats say another $30 billion is needed in order to implement a comprehensive national strategy. Back to you. Yep. And we just talked to the congressman about how uh, some sort of coordination is probably needed uh, to avoid pitting states against each other. Elon, thanks. Elon Moy. We appreciate it. Coming up, the doctor will see you now. The coronavirus crisis has made telehealth more important and more widely used than ever. We'll speak with the CEO of ZocDoc about the trends they are seeing. Plus, Morgan Stanley out with a dire new call on how bad unemployment will be next month. Their chief economist joins us ahead. Stay with The Exchange.
Welcome back. Let's check on, uh, in on these markets, which were up substantially at the highs, more than 600 points. Dow's now up 450. That's a 1.9 percent gain. S&P, Nasdaq, all higher. The Nasdaq, the laggard, though, up half a percent. And all of these gains come despite the falling price of oil, which is just over $18 a barrel. Even the energy sector is higher today, although oil might be exaggerating its decline. The contract does roll over on Monday. Uh, we'll have more on that next hour. The small business loan program has officially run out of money. A new bill that would include additional funding for the program is at a standstill on Capitol Hill. But just in the last half hour, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy announced that he backs adding hospital funding to the new package. That's been a major sticking point in this stalemate. Here with more now is Brad Close. He's president of the NFIB. Uh, Brad, I I imagine you guys just want any deal uh, that gives you more funding as soon as possible. Hello, Kelly. Yeah, at this point, uh, the fund has run dry. Small businesses have no options out there. So it is paramount that Congress get this done immediately, replenish those funds, because there's nowhere else for small businesses to go. You guys today issued a 10-point legislative plan that you say is essential for the survival of small businesses, and there's some really interesting stuff in here. First of all, you think you need at least $400 billion more dollars, and that half of that should be earmarked for companies with less than 20 employees. Lengthen the eight-week window for forgiveness, you're saying. Um, other stuff in here as well. I mean, allow people to try to hire in good faith, even if they can't. You say they're going to be competing with more generous unemployment benefits. You're learning a lot about what these small businesses need right now. We are. We've talked uh, directly to about twenty to 30,000 uh, small business owners over the last three to four weeks, and we're getting a lot of information back from them. What we're finding with the uh, loan program is that many of the smallest businesses, those under 20, are having a difficult time uh, getting their paperwork processed, getting the loan application started through lenders. So we think it's imperative that not only does Congress appropriate another uh, $400 billion for the program, but that they reserve 200 of that for the smallest business out there to make sure that they have the opportunity to apply and get help. You know, there was a lot of press about how some of the small businesses that applied for aid are financial companies, uh, maybe some kinds of professional services firms that, that weren't as hard hit or in immediate need necessarily as the, the sort of Main Street ball small business we come to think about. That might uh, be an asterisk if there's plenty more funding available. But if not, I imagine there's going to be a lot more blowback about who got the money and who didn't, right? Yeah, I think so. If you talk to small business owners, they are concerned that significantly larger businesses uh, are, are getting a lot of this loan program. Uh, we want everybody to get help, but really the smallest businesses are the ones that need it right now. They don't have great banking relationships with large banks. Their relationships are going to be better with community banks. Um, that's who they're going through. It's just taking a little while, but um, they need that assurance that even though they may only have two, five, ten employees, that they're going to get an equal chance at getting help here as the big guys. I wonder if $400 billion more would even be enough to fill the need. If we have less than 2 million loans already out of 30 million small businesses in the country, that would suggest a number in the multi-trillions if all of them got equivalent help. Yeah, it's a great point. The reason we are asking for 400 is because we thought the original request of another 250 would be out in another two weeks. I think Congress will have to take another look at at this after they uh, refund the program. Uh, certainly the Fed's Main Street program uh, could stand to be tweaked a little so it helps more smaller businesses. That would be another option that right now isn't really available to a lot of small businesses. So there are other things that can be done, but yeah, that $400 billion is not going to last forever. Why do, am I reading this correctly, that you want the loan rate increased from 1%? Well, we're concerned that a 1% loan rate right now um, will uh, encourage some businesses who have easy credit access uh, to the credit right now. It's, it's a very inexpensive loan. We want to make sure that 
um, businesses that are taking that loan out really need it, um, that aren't just putting it away for a rainy day. That's not true across the board, um, but we have heard that from some of the smallest businesses right now and um, that uh, they're not getting it because those funds are being used up. So we th- if we think that the rate was a little bit higher, that would be okay, and that would ensure that um, all businesses, no matter their size, get an equal shot at these funds. That is a fascinating and counterintuitive point. Uh, Brad, thanks very much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Brad Close is president of the National Federation of Independent Business. Coming up, more and more people are turning to technology for information and even for health treatment these days. We're going to have a closer look at what kind of health questions Alexa is getting and the privacy concerns that come with it. Then they are the nation's largest telehealth platform and demand for virtual visits is skyrocketing. The CEO of ZocDoc joins us live with how his company is filling some of the health care gaps during the pandemic. The exchange continues after this. Welcome back. Let's get to today's top calls. And we begin with Apple this time, which was downgraded to sell by Goldman. The firm also cut Apple's earnings estimates for the third time since February, saying they see a deeper reduction in unit demand through mid-2020 and a shallower recovery into early 2021. This is based on what their economists are forecasting. Goldman, this is interesting, now expects services growth to slow substantially for Apple next year in 2021, and that services as a percentage of revenue will stagnate. Their price target on Apple goes to 233. Apple's down 2% to 280 today. Next, TJ Maxx parent company, TJX, upgraded by Jefferies to a buy with a $60 price target. The firm thinks TJX will actually capture market share in a post-COVID-19 world as department stores lose share. The analyst adds that consumers are gravitating towards value and that TJX has the balance sheet flexibility to weather the storm. The stock is up more than 6% today to just under $50. And finally, Barclays is downgrading UPS to underweight with a $90 target. They say the company will be negatively impacted by lower industrial activity and B2B volume. The analyst also says they expect margin headwinds in the coming year due to less cost efficiency. Checking on UPS today, it's down 1.5%. And more and more people are turning to big tech for information and resources on coronavirus. And Amazon is one of those places. Deirdre Bosa is here with a look at the company's expanding footprint into healthcare and the privacy concerns that surround it. Deirdre? So, Kelly, testing was a crucial part of Jeff Bezos's letter to shareholders this week. In it, he gave some new details about Amazon's plans for its own coronavirus testing site and said that they would be testing all frontline employees, quote, soon. Now, about a month ago, Alphabet subsidiary Verily started to facilitate testing in California. That has now expanded to four states, adding New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. Now, this is what you referred to. You can even ask Amazon's virtual assistant, Alexa, what to do if you think that you have COVID-19. She will follow up with a series of questions and then provide CDC guidance based on risk factors and symptoms. Now, Kelly, when it comes to privacy, which is always such an important piece of this. Users may be willing to give up more of their personal information now in the time of a global pandemic when they need quick access to information. Google and Amazon and others say that they do have privacy protections in place, but some experts warn that the true cost of this is not yet known and may not be known for some time to come. Back to you. Yep, that's for sure. Deirdre, thanks. 
Amazon isn't the only tech company capitalizing on the rise of telemedicine. The online medical care service ZocDoc now offers nearly a million video visits with more than 6,000 providers across 60 different specialties. That's helped it become one of the largest and fastest-growing telehealth platforms in the country. For more on how healthcare is adapting to the COVID-19 outbreak, I'm joined by Dr. Oliver Karaz, who is founder and CEO of ZocDoc. Oliver, welcome. I actually want to ask you about a story CNBC has pointed out, which is that a lot of telehealth platforms are waiving their fees right now. Is that potentially kind of a headwind for you guys, even as this demand explodes? I think, uh, well, first of all, uh, thanks for having me. Good to be here. Uh, I uh, think there is uh, a number of problems and the actual technology platform with which uh, providers see patients uh, is one of them. The other bit is actually finding uh, that capacity. If you're a patient, it's great to know that there are doctors out there uh, offering telemedicine. But which doctors specifically are these? Uh, where are they? Uh, how are they available? How do you get in touch with them? DocDoc is fo- focusing on this latter point. So if someone needs to understand where is a doctor that accepts their insurance uh, that has uh, telemed capacity, they can come to DocDoc.com. The doctor themselves can use a whole uh, range of uh, telemedicine uh, solutions uh, and, and technical platforms. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of interesting uh, growth here. Uh, you guys said now 35% of your bookings are for video visits. That number was mm-hmm. zero a month ago. You now have 6,000 providers with video visits uh, that have kind of come out of nowhere, uh, so to speak. Um, so while there's clearly demand for this, how much of, of our sort of visits will permanently change to this kind of telehealth? And, you know, how many won't? I mean, obviously, I still have to go to the, the dentist's office, uh, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, but what do you think of, in terms of the rules around this or the way that we do medicine? Uh, could some of this permanently change? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And what uh, we have seen is that while patients and providers in the past have been reluctant to embrace telemedicine, now that they get forced into this experience, they actually love it. I have talked to multiple patients myself. They say, well, I didn't really ever think that telemedicine could solve my problem, uh, but uh, it was actually a great experience. And doctors uh, see the same. They actually feel they can connect uh, more with patients in, in some instances where they're invited uh, in some ways into the patient's home and understand more of the environment that these patients work in. So I do think, and I agree with you, some specialties like dentistry and orthopedics, it's harder to see how that will be to a large extent uh, d- delivered by uh, telemedicine. However, you know, mental health, which is one of the uh, major demand areas for us right now, alongside uh, with primary care, uh, I think uh, has a fantastic experience uh, when it comes to telehealth. So I do think this is going to be uh, you know, specialty-specific uh, as, as this all evolves. But today, I can tell you, even dentists are offering teledentistry to screen patients and understand whether a patient can just take, for example, pain medication that needs to come in right. uh, and be treated in emergency fashion. You know, finally, you mentioned that you are seeing a, a big demand in some areas, including mental health. Um, what can you tell us about where demand is coming from as coronavirus continues? So the demand is broad-based. We have over 60 uh, specialties. We have seen over 800 different uh, visit reasons why a doctor, why a patient would want to see a doctor right now. And I think what's important to understand is that on a, a regular day, pre-COVID in America, 3 million patients would uh, see a doctor in uh, person. Now, that's uh, less uh, happening today. And that all that 
uh, demand for care, which is crucial to fulfill so that patients don't have to go to the emergency room right. and have worse outcomes, potentially get infected. All that demand now needs to be channeled uh, to telemedicine and, uh, and the doctors arising to the occasion. And is this free for me to use? I know you guys have shifted your business model to flat fee versus subscription model, but is it free for me, the user? It's absolutely free for the patient. You can go to Zocto.com or download the app. You put in what your insurance is and what uh, your problem is, and we'll show you providers in your area that, uh, that are available through telemedicine or in person, whatever might be the right uh, answer for you right now. All right, Dr. Oliver Karaz of uh, ZocDoc, the founder and CEO. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. Up ahead, Morgan Stanley is out with a bold call on the unemployment picture for May. It's not all bad. We're going to speak with the chief economist uh, next. It is mostly bad, though. Uh, As we head to break, here's a look at the S&P sector heat map. All 11 sectors are in the green today, led by energy, surprisingly enough. Uh, Also, financials and industrials. As I said, uh, all the sectors higher. Dow's up 413. We're back in two. Welcome back to The Exchange. Some breaking news. Governor of Texas Greg Abbott saying schools in the state will remain closed for the rest of the academic year. That makes Texas the 28th state to order or recommend that schools stay closed. The comments coming amid his push to reopen the state's economy. And after we just spoke with New Jersey Congressman Josh Gottheimer, who was holding out some hope that that state might still return to school this year. Well, nearly 22 million people filing for unemployment benefits in just the past month. According to Morgan Stanley, that will put the unemployment rate up to more than 16 percent in May. That's the highest level since the Great Depression. One small piece of good news on jobs just crossing the tape is that Walmart announced they're going to hire another 50,000 people on top of the 150,000 people they hired last month or said they would. Joining me now with more on this jobs picture is Ellen Zentner. She's chief U.S. economist at Morgan Stanley. And Ellen, look, there's no positive way to talk about the unemployment picture other than the hope that this may prove very fleeting. Do you think there's any chance that that will prove true? I mean, this thing is going to spike, and, and how quickly should we realistically expect it to drop back down? Yeah, well, so it is going to spike, um, and that's a grim reality, and I think it's something that we've all become accustomed to. Um, but it can come down more quickly than, say, in past recessions, especially if you compare it to the great financial uh, crisis. Uh, and that's because of the over- uh support that we've gotten from the Fed uh, and from Congress and Treasury, it's nothing like we've ever seen before. And to the extent that some of these lending programs are successful and you help keep uh, enough businesses on ice so that they can open up more quickly on on the back of this, even if that's at limited capacity, the better chance you have for bringing workers uh, back into the labor force or back into having a job. So of the roughly 22 million, which it is going to climb from here, uh, but the 22 million that we've seen in jobless claims thus far, we think we can get about 10 to 12 million up and back uh, into jobs by the end of the year. Yeah, well, that, I, again, it'd be even better if it was by the end of the you know, summer, although I, I, I know that's unrealistic. You know, there's a lot of differences in how jobless claims are tallied in the unemployment report. And I wonder how much we can even trust these figures, which are going to be all over the place. I mean, even the survey responses last month were, were pretty weak and it lended to more of uh, an estimate error than we usually see. So how do we know what the true picture is uh, jobs-wise, even with jobless claims where we know some states haven't processed all of theirs and some people haven't gotten their money yet? 
Yeah, so you make really good uh, – it, it's a really astute point that not that many people are talking about are these measurement issues. I mean, when you – and it's not just the jobs data. I mean, think about the inflation data. Uh, when airlines are not uh, uh, functioning anywhere near properly, how can you get uh, proper price discovery on what airline prices are? Okay. You know, when states are just inundated with claims, how can you get a proper – uh, read when you need a lot of information from businesses that are just simply not open. How can you get that? So what it means is that it adds to that uh, unusually large degree of uncertainty around forecasts. And what it means is that uh, down the line, when we start to get benchmark revisions to the data today, the revisions will be much larger than they typically are. Now, mm -hmm. that can go in either direction, but I think if it turns out that things are a bit worse than they even look on paper right now, I don't think that that would surprise anyone. What's your uh, letter for the shape of this recovery as we know it right now? Uh, you know, it's... Uh, Economists are quite literal. It's something that drives my husband crazy, I can tell you. Uh, so when you mark down <laughs> forecasts from economists on paper, it looks like a V. Uh, there's no getting around it, but it's got to be the weakest V I've ever seen uh, and doesn't at all, uh, you know, uh, properly convey just how dampened growth will be on the other side of this. I mean, even as we're coming out of uh, non-essential business closures, you know, restaurants, for example, are not are going to be at limited capacity for some time. Yeah. Uh, there's a crisis of confidence underpinning households that will keep them more cautious for a time. Rolling work from home arrangements will keep things cautious for a time. So I think we just have to uh, temper our expectations. But I think the, the, if, if, if there's one important point I can convey today, Quickly. it's that we are moving through the worst of it now. And households are seeing a light at the end of the tunnel. And the thing there is that before there's an upturn in activity, we have to see the worst of the decline first. And that's yeah. what we're seeing now. And that's going to be true for GDP as well. I know we're heading into the storm. Uh, Ellen, thanks. We appreciate it. Hope to check back in with you soon. Thanks. thanks Ellen Kelly. Zentner is chief U.S. economist at Morgan Stanley. Stay tuned. Tyler joins the action next hour. Power Lunch is coming up with a rare interview with New York Times columnist Paul Krugman, who says the CARES Act was basically just a down payment for what needs to be an even bigger stimulus package. Stay with us. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.